Today's scripture reading is John chapter 7, verse 53, and chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And at once he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Well, if you have your Bibles open this morning, and I pray that somehow, some way you do, whether it's in your lap or on your device, in most of your Bibles, the text that was read this morning, John chapter 7, verses 53 through John 8, verse 11, is either in parentheses or it's in brackets or it's in both. Amen? Amen. Possibly has a footnote there as well. Trying to somehow explain to you some of the problems that some may have with this particular passage of Scripture. This is because, beloved, if you might uh, bear with me here just a moment, many do not believe that this section of the Scriptures or this account of of Jesus with this woman is not in the Gospel of John when John was originally written. Now, I don't want to bore you with all of this, but I know there's some of you who are interested in this type of thing. And so if you just bear with me just a moment for Pastor Phil's sake. In this area of research and biblical scholarship that is known as textual criticism, don't worry, there won't be a test later, <laughs> this section of Scripture is, is, is highly criticized and, and questioned. Some don't believe that it should be in the Bible at all. And, and some who do believe that it should be in the Bible suggest that it should at least be in a different place. Perhaps it should be in the Gospel of Luke, or perhaps it is in a different place in the Gospel of John. And now the reason for this kind of doubt and skepticism is that this account of Jesus with the woman caught in adultery, they tell us, is not found in the earliest copies that we have of the Gospel of John. And, and, and also that the early church fathers, as they were preaching and teaching and commenting on the Gospel of John, don't seem to make much mention of this episode with this woman. And yet, beloved, while there is some debate, there is some debate as to the place 
of this portion of Scripture in the Bible, let me say this, that there is little debate as to the truth of what it teaches, even among those who do not believe or who argue that this is not the place that it should be or whether this event actually occurred, most people believe that this is an actual account in the life of Jesus. Everything about it rings true about Jesus. In fact, there's one um, New Testament professor who did not believe, does not believe that this portion of Scripture should be uh, in this portion of the Bible, and yet he writes that there is little reason for doubting that the event described here actually occurred. And why is that, beloved? Why is that? Because this, this event, this account here rings true about everything that we know about Jesus. It has the earmarks of everything that we know about his life and, and ministry, everything that we know about his teaching. And personally, I'm, I'm convinced that this account of Jesus is not only true, but it helps us to paint a fuller picture a fuller picture of the life and the ministry of, of Jesus. It continues, it continues as the Gospel of John has done already to paint the plan and the purpose of Jesus, the Son of God, come into the world to save sinners. Jesus' account with this woman not only rings true in the context of the gospel, but I believe it also fits well within the context of John and the picture that we have been seeing that John has been painting concerning the person and work of Jesus even up to this point. Notice that Jesus had frequent encounters and discussions with the Pharisees and the, and the scribes and the chief priests. So there's nothing unusual about the fact that they are coming to Jesus and they're questioning him. This is a common occurrence in the day-to-day -day ministry of Jesus. Not only that, but, but Jesus was in frequent conversations with women. There's nothing out of place here. He often blessed them. And it's amazing how many interactions that our Lord has with people and how those people are women and how he blessed them, using them to illustrate some important aspect of the gospel and practically benefiting from their presence in his ministry. And thirdly, Jesus seized, you read the account of Jesus, Jesus seized every opportunity to prove that the law was insufficient to save. And only he could do that. And he proved it again and again. And he proves it in our text this morning. Listen, beloved, I believe that John chapter 7, verse 53 through 8, 11 is contained in your Bibles because it is as God would have it this morning. God would have us to know and to understand the impact Jesus had 
and continues to have on those who would know his mercy and his grace. Nevertheless, nevertheless, if you are one of those who does not believe that the text belongs in the Bible this morning, I respect your opinion. I respect your opinion. However, I would kindly beg your pardon. Beg your pardon and ask you for patience and indulge me this morning, if you will, Brother Ant. Indulge me this morning as I briefly speak and hopefully, hopefully use it to point us again to the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ this morning. Why? Because regardless, our goal is always the same, isn't it? We want to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. And I think that's what we see this morning in this text. Okay, enough of that. Let's see what the text says. The text, I believe, fits well where it is framed. Right? As we saw last week, we looked at the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And the last day of, feast of the Feast of the Tabernacles had been a long day. It's always a long day. It was the most exciting day. It was the most joy-filled day. It was a long day. And not only had it been a long day, but Jesus had been engaged in the tabernacle and he had said some really profound and controversial things. And, and the scribes and the chief priests were frustrated, frustrated in their attempts to derail him. They were frustrated in their attempts to derail enthusiasm for him. So as the day went on, the Bible says that everybody went home. But the Pharisees and the scribes and the chief priests, they were not ready to give up. And so the Bible says that on the next day, they were at it again. They were at it again. You see there in verse 2, the Bible says that Jesus was up bright and early the next day morning teaching in the temple. He was teaching in the temple because this was his comfort zone, beloved. This is where Jesus was. This was his comfort zone ever since the age of 12, you, you, you recall, that Jesus could be found in the temple teaching and, and preaching. And, and he's in the temple teaching, and what is he teaching? Well, I think it's fair to say that Jesus' kingdom, what does kingdom living look like? In Matthew chapter 13, when he, when he opens up and begins to share parables, why does he share the parables? The Bible tells us he shares the parables so that he might illustrate what the kingdom of God is like. In Matthew 13, verse 11, the Bible says, Jesus says, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. And then he goes on over and over again 
in, in Matthew 13, as he's teaching them, and say, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like. Why? Because Jesus was always about the kingdom of God, what it is, and how one might enter into the joy of it. And so, therefore, I think it's safe to say that when he is there in the temple teaching, he is in the temple teaching about the kingdom of God. This is why he's in the temple. And the Pharisees know this. And the scribes and the chief priests and the lawmakers know this. The Jewish authorities know where Jesus is. And so they devise a plan. They scheme. It didn't work yesterday. But today we have a different plan. And they devise a plan to distract Jesus. Distract those who are listening to him. They devise a plan to discredit Jesus. Because if they can distract Jesus, and if they can discredit Jesus, then they can destroy Jesus. And so you see what they do. They want to distract Jesus and those who are listening to him. In John chapter 3, I mean John chapter 8, in verse 3, the Bible says that in the middle of his teaching, right in the middle of this crowd of men, these men, because Jesus is teaching the men in the temple. And in this crowd of men, in the midst of Jesus' teaching, they bring a woman and they place her right in the midst of all these men. And they interrupt Jesus. And they claim that this woman had been caught in the very act of adultery. They bring her, beloved, they bring her to this public setting in the middle of this public address. And no doubt, beloved, she's probably barely dressed. No doubt their aim was to shame her. But even more than those, their aim is to distract Distract Jesus from his teachings. Distract those who are listening to Jesus. Because they knew if Jesus, if they brought this woman in the midst of this place, Jesus couldn't ignore this. No one could. Not only could they not ignore the, ignore the fact that they have brought this woman into the midst of this gathering, but they couldn't ignore the charges. Adultery was a serious offense. Everyone, everyone knew the consequences for such a thing. In Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 10, 
The Bible is clear, isn't it? If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. Doesn't get any more clear than that. Doesn't get any more plain than that. And yet the Bible also says that to charge someone with this offense, beloved, you needed clear and consistent testimony of two or three witnesses. Two or three people had to witness this. And they both had to witness it and come away saying the same thing. That's what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verse 6. On the testimony of two or three witnesses, a person is to be put to death. No one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. So not only was this a serious matter, beloved, listen to me. These matters were very difficult to prove. They were very difficult to prove because... You have to have several people who not only know when and where, but have to watch and bear witness to this affair at the same time. What does that say? It says that there's obviously something underhanded going on here. There's obviously something of a setup going on here. And how do we know this? Because the Bible says that only the woman was brought to Jesus. And we all know that it takes two to tango. Beloved, women were at a serious disadvantage in that society. There was no me too back then. I mean, it was, it was tough. They were powerless to defend themselves. They were often at the mercy of men, and in this case, deceitful and abusive men. Marriages were often arranged, and girls were married off to the highest bidder. Romance and, and love and affection rarely entered into the equation. Women were vulnerable, men too often abusive. And Jesus knew this better than anyone. And he knew what was happening here. He knew the scheme. And though they thought Jesus would be distracted, And therefore, he could be discredited. How would he be discredited? 
because they bring the woman to Jesus not so much because they are interested in justice, beloved, not because they are interested in the law, but they are interested in discrediting Jesus in the presence of the people. This woman, again, is just a means to an end. They put Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. They, 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 they put before him a question that seemingly has no right answer. Like the, like the question of, have you stopped beating your husband yet? Or can, can, can God create a rock that is too big for him to carry? Questions, questions that seemingly have no right answer. And so they come to Jesus, and in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 8, they say, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery. In the law, Moses commands us to stone such a woman. What do you say? They interrupt his teaching. In the midst of all those presents, Jesus, she's guilty of adultery. The law of Moses says that we are to stone her. What say you? Now, beloved, Jesus is not flustered by their question, and he's, he's used to their question. He's used to answering questions in, in public. He's, he's used to these Pharisees and these scribes and, 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 and these lawmakers coming to ask him questions. He's already dealt with questions concerning taxes. He's dealt with questions concerning the resurrection. He's dealt with questions concerning healing on the Sabbath. He's, he's used to answering and dealing with their, quest, with their questioning. And so he, he wasn't flustered by their questions. But this time he's particularly careful. He's particularly careful because even though they had questioned him before, this time was different. This was not a theoretical question. This was a question of life and death. This question had a face to it, a vulnerable, feminine face to it. And if Jesus doesn't stone her, then his understanding and commitment to the law of God would be put into question. But if Jesus agreed to stone her, then his teachings on compassion and mercy and love for others would then be discredited. Beloved, I want you to understand the intensity of the moment here. These are important and familiar questions for us. Where does God's justice and God's mercy meet? What is the relationship between God's law and God's love? How can God be just and the justifier at the same time? These are important questions. 
and they were acutely important with that distressed woman in front of Jesus and her accusers standing there with stones raised in their hands ready to strike. This is an intense moment. They are not looking to take her to jail. Depending on the answer that Jesus gives, the stones would begin to strike. They have stones in their hands. What does Jesus do? How was he going to uphold the integrity of the law and yet, at the same time, demonstrate the love and compassion of God. Oh, beloved, Jesus addressed the issue like only Jesus could. He responded with a profundity that still boggles the sharpest mind, and melts the hardest hearts. There is a link, a bridge, if you were, between the justice of God and the mercy of God. There is a bridge between the law of God and the love of God. And that bridge, beloved, is Jesus. And this here, this passage of Scripture, this encounter illustrates as much as any that there is a bridge between the law of God and the love of God, that there is a link between the mercy of God and the justice of God. And it points you squarely to Jesus. To Jesus. The scribes and the Pharisees thought that they would distract Jesus. They thought that they would discredit Jesus. Beloved, not at all. When they brought that woman to Jesus, Jesus says, this is just the illustration I've been looking for. This is it. And he illustrates for us this morning two important foundational truths for life in the kingdom of God. Don't miss them. Boggles the mind and it melts the heart. The first thing he says, or he shows, is the commonality of sin. The commonality of sin. 
after they asked the question, the Bible says in John 8 and verse 6, that Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, we don't know what he wrote. I'm sure uh, Brother Woodard would have some answers about what Jesus wrote. But we honestly don't know what he wrote. We don't even know, beloved, why he wrote. There is, there is much speculation. Perhaps he was just doodling. Perhaps he was just bending down, buying time. Buying time that hopefully these idiots would see their error. Sometimes you just got to give people time. Perhaps that's what he was doing. Or perhaps he actually did write something. Perhaps he wrote Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 13. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. For they, shall, they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Perhaps he wrote Jeremiah 17, 13. Or perhaps, perhaps, beloved, he wrote something that he had taught earlier in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this is actually the sum of the law and the prophets. Perhaps he wrote for them the, the golden rule. Or perhaps, or perhaps he began to write out sins. Lust, adultery, greed, bitterness, anger, all the sins of those who were standing there with stones in their hands. Now, beloved, I don't know what he wrote. I don't, I don't know why he wrote. But I do know that when he had finished writing, the Bible says that Jesus rose up and he spoke those immortal words in verse 7. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. That's profound, beloved. That is a profound turn of events. Jesus, notice that Jesus doesn't say she's innocent. Leave her alone. Why? Because she wasn't innocent. He doesn't say she's not guilty. He doesn't say she has not broken the law. Why? Because she had broken the law. What Jesus does, beloved, is remind us and them that we have all broken the law. She was caught by the law, but guess what? So we all are caught by the law. Every last one of us. And so Jesus rose up and he said, Gentlemen, the law doesn't just accuse this woman, but it accuses you, it accuses you, it accuses you, it accuses you. 
accuses all of us. As it says in James chapter 2 and verse 10, right? For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Jesus said, yes, yes, yes. The law says adultery is wrong, but that is not all the law says. The law that condemns adultery in her also condemns hatred and bigotry in you, also condemns lust and greed in you, also condemns pride and adultery, uh, idolatry in you. Let he who has never lusted in his heart throw the first stone. Let him who has never been lifted up in pride throw the first stone. Let him who has never spoken an unkind word throw the first stone. Let him who has loved God with all of his heart and his mind and his soul Let him throw the first stone. You know what the legalists in us causes us to do, beloved? It causes us to see clearly the offenses of others, but be all so reticent to see the offenses in ourselves. You know, I do, I do a little bit of counseling, Pastor Phil. And it is very, very, very rare that anybody ever tells on themselves. Very, very rare do you get the whole story from one person. So if you come to me, I'm just telling on myself, if you come to me, I'm going to listen to you, but I'm going to listen very suspiciously. Because the legalists in all of us are as quick, quick to see the offense in others, but also reticent to see the offense in ourselves. We are quick to point out and point to the failures in others. But we are slow, beloved, to see our own. To see our own. But you know what life in the grace of Christ demands? Life in the grace of Christ demands that we see ourselves first. That we see ourselves first in the sight of God before we look at others. Let those, beloved, let those who have a perfect marriage stand in judgment of other couples. Let those who have perfect children stand in judgment of other parents. Let us, beloved, look Look at ourselves. Let those, let those who have never lusted in their heart or mind condemn those who have fallen to temptation. Only those. 
I think the Williams brothers said it right, didn't they, Buck? Sweep around your own front door. Okay, <laughs> you come trying to sweep around mine. Yes, 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 beloved. She was caught up by the law. But if we're honest this morning, we are all caught up by the law. What Romans 3 and 23 says, doesn't it? We have all sinned. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all fall short of God's perfections. We all fall short of keeping His law. And this is the commonality. This is the commonality that we as experience as sinners. No one is better than any other. In fact, in fact, I stand here this morning knowing myself even better than I know you. And since I know myself better than I know you, then I can say like the Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst one. I'm the worst one. I read somebody say something this week that was just profound. It's been sticking with me, and it will stick for, with me the rest of my life. And he said this, if the biggest sinner you know isn't you, then you don't know yourself very well. Because I know me better than I know you. And whatever I think I know about you, if I know myself like I should know myself, I am convinced that I am yet the worst sinner I know. And if that's the case, if that's the case, then let me be slow. Let me be careful. Let me be patient. Let me be kind. As I seek to understand your temptations and your sins your faults, and your failures. Jesus reminds us that sin is the common denominator in all of our lives. And this is why, this is why, beloved, saving grace is so uncommon. And this is the second point that Jesus makes. Not only does he show the commonality of sin, but he shows the uncommonality of grace. Whatever words you use to describe the saving grace of God this morning, common is not one of them. No, no, no. And you see this because Jesus does something uncommon. Jesus flipped the script. He flipped the script on them. They were looking for Jesus to be distracted. 
They were looking for Jesus to be discredited. But all they did was come to serve and magnify his grace. See in verse 9. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. They wanted to stone the woman. Jesus showed them something, beloved, that they were not expecting. He showed them that there was only one person with the moral authority to judge. There was only one person present with a hand righteous enough to raise a stone to her. And so he did the unlikely. He did the unanticipated. He did the unexpected. He did the grace thing. Because this is the nature of grace. It is unexpected. It is unanticipated. It is unlikely. The Pharisees brought the law and sin. Jesus responded with the one power that is greater than the law. The one power that is greater than sin, namely grace. Grace is greater. Grace is greater. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 20, the Bible says, The law was brought in so that trespass might increase, but where sin increased, Grace increased all the more. Why? Because grace is greater than the law. Grace is greater than sin. The Pharisees had the law. And therefore, they thought they had Jesus. And Jesus comes and he defeats them. Not with the law. He defeats them with grace. Because this is the only way, beloved, sin is defeated. It's by grace. She was caught by the law. She was saved by grace. Caught by the law. Saved by grace. There was only one in the temple that could condemn her. And listen to what he said. Verse 10. Woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And she replied, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go 
And from now on, sin no more. No condemnation. No condemnation. Why? Not because she's innocent. Because she is not. Not because she is sinless. Because she is not. Not because she is faultless. Because she is not. No condemnation because of Jesus. Because Jesus is there. Because the Bible says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. She is not condemned because Jesus is there. And there is no condemnation for those who belong to him. None, none, none. Where are your accusers, he's asked. Nowhere, nowhere. Why? Because those in Christ have no accusers. That's what it says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 33, right? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. No one. Christ who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Listen, beloved. Listen to me. Listen to me carefully. Brother Gibson, listen to me. This text teaches us a truth that is hard for us to truly grasp. But I pray that you would grasp it this morning. And that is this. Those in Christ have really had their sins forgiven. If you are in Christ, your sin is forgiven. I know you don't believe that. You don't believe it. You don't believe it. Most of us, most of us believe we are forgiven and not condemned so long as we don't sin. As long as I don't commit a sin, I'm good. But the minute that we fall, the minute we fall into temptation, the minute we fall into sin, then we think we are condemned again. Listen, beloved, I can't say this loud enough. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Once Christ has died for your sin, he isn't coming to die again. He has taken your sin. 
There are no new charges coming. There are no new cases to adjudicate. You are forgiven. And you are never again condemned. The Pharisees may come and condemn you. The scribes may come and condemn you because they're members of this church. They're on our rolls. And they will come and condemn you. They will come and charge you. And you need to look them in the face and say, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Believe it. Believe it, beloved. Believe it this morning. She was free. Do you get that? She walked away free. You're free this morning. You're free this morning. I know. I know. We spend a lot of time putting each other in bondage. But brothers and sisters, you are free. Christ has set you free. They all left. It was just the woman and Jesus. Once again, just Jesus. Only Jesus. Just her and Jesus. And Jesus says, now go. Go. You're free. Go. And by the way, don't do that again. Don't do that again. Listen, beloved. Do you think she did that again? I don't know. If she's anything like me, I'm afraid she probably did. How many times, how many times have you told the Lord that you wouldn't do something again? And then you did it again. How many times? Too many times. I won't even share my diaries or journals with you. Too many times. Too many times. I have promised the Lord that I wouldn't do it again. And I found myself doing again. Here is the grace and mercy of God that even though you break your promises to Jesus, he never breaks his promises to you. And the security and joy of my salvation, beloved, is not that I am going to be perfect from now on, but that my acceptance is in the perfection of Jesus. It's in him. Jesus says, go now, go now, go now. And don't do that again. 
But if you do that again, I'm here. I'll always be here. That's what it says. Not in John 8, but John did write it in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, that doesn't have to say, but if anyone does sin, that says when, when anyone does sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is on your side. He was on the side of this woman, and he advocated for her. He is on your side. He's going to advocate for you. Jesus stood there. He stood there between the law and this woman. Jesus stands now between the law and you and me. Jesus stood there between the woman and the judgment for her sin. Jesus ever stands between you and me and the judgment for our sin. He is an ever advocate, beloved. You know what? You know what? There is no other place you can get this. Only in Jesus. Only in Jesus. There is no other name that can do this. Only Jesus. There is no other way you can get here. Only in Jesus. There is nothing left to say. But Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Beloved, I don't know whether you believe that this text belongs in the Gospel of John. Or not, I do know you better look to Jesus because he's the only hope you have against the law and sin. He's the only hope you have against the judgment for your sin. He's the only one who can stand up and say, there's now no condemnation on you. Go. 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 Only Jesus. Let's pray.